0: Um, Okay, I'm Professor Simon Newman, and I teach at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Um, The database is about enslaved people who were brought to England and Scotland in the 1700s and who then escaped. And when they escaped, sometimes their masters placed runaway slave advertisements in the newspapers, as as they were often called at the time. And what we've done is go, go through... Um, probably about 800 English and Scottish newspapers looking for these advertisements, and then we've created a database so that anyone can now go and find these advertisements and look at them.
1: Hi, yes. I am Manisha Sinha, the Draper Chair in American History at the University of Connecticut, and I am also the author of The Slaves' Cause, A History of Abolition. So uh, my book uh, is a history of uh, the American Abolition Movement from the Revolution uh, to the Civil War. And basically, I argue that we need to center the history of slave resistance and especially fugitive slave abolitionists in the abolition movement, uh, even beyond some of the well-known figures that we know, like Frederick Douglass. It also looks at the Anglo-American abolition movement and really looks at the American abolition movement in a transnational comparative perspective, Uh, and I compare how the abolition movement in the United States intersected with certain radical international movements of its times, um, like uh, feminism, pacifism, uh, utopian socialism, Uh, and also the struggle for working men and Native American rights. You think about slave resistance, we have to think of it in a very broad way. Uh, Normally we think of rebellions and running away, and those are of course very important forms of slave resistance. But slaves also petitioned and sued for their freedom. And there was this real history of uh, suing for one's freedom right from the colonial era, Uh, And some of the most important judicial decisions in Anglo-American history against slavery came about because some ordinary slaves uh, chose to sue for their freedom. So, for example, um, in Britain, you have the famous Somerset case in which a runaway slave, James Somerset, sued his master Uh, And the decision basically said that no colonial slaveholder could come to Britain and forcibly take their slave back to the colonies. Uh, This was in 1772. And uh, this is like the first landmark decision uh, that was actually the result of the efforts of the enslaved themselves. And I argue in my book that it's not a coincidence that the most important anti-slavery decision in Anglo-American law Uh, is named after a fugitive slave. Um, And this is the decision, the Somerset principle, that many northern states would later on use to enforce the freedom principle in their states when runaway slaves came uh, to free states uh, after the revolution. Um, You also, of course, have the famous case in Massachusetts of Mumbet and Quark Walker, who sued their masters for their freedom, and this ultimately resulted in a decision by the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts um, in seventeen eighty four that outlawed slavery. So when we think of abolition, we always think of it as a law or a proclamation handed down from on high, but actually, if you look at what the enslaved did, um, they in many times were you know the architects of their own freedom. So then if you go right down to the 19th century and you go to the Dred Scott case in which Dred and Harriet Scott sued their masters for their freedom because he had taken them uh, to free territory, you can also see that, you know, this tradition continues.
0: Well, it's interesting though. you have the Somerset case in in England in 1772 and the Knight v. Wedderburn case in Scotland in 1778 that do much the same thing. Um, and that makes it much more difficult for people who are enslaved to bring their slaves to Britain and to bring enslaved people, and then, if they want to, to take them back to the colonies. Most of these advertisements come from the years before that, and especially in the, in the period from about the 1720s to the 1760s, people coming from the colonies felt completely free to bring enslaved people with them. It was very rare to have any kind of threat to, to take and save people away or free them, uh, the courts were not really active. It's only as abolitionism develops in the 1770s that that happens. But up until that point, um, slavery was, to all intents and purposes, le- legal in England and Scotland. Yes. um, One of the things that's quite interesting about the enslaved people who are brought to Britain is how different their lives would be once they were in Britain. They tend to be very young and usually male. Many of them are children and almost all are brought as domestic servants. So they are household servants. Um, Some are sailors and a few are craftsmen. Some are uh, domestic servants who are female. So That, to begin with, makes them very different from people who were being required to work on plantations in Virginia or Maryland or Jamaica or in any of the British colonies. But that said, as these advertisements show, some of these people had been born in Africa, had undergone the Middle Passage, had been enslaved in America or the Caribbean, and then brought to Britain. So they knew what, uh, what, as you described, the peculiar institution was like. And what many of them fear is being taken back or sent back to that. That's often the uh, cause of running away is a fear that they will be taken back to that. So slavery was very different in Britain, but the threat of going back to new world slavery was very real.
1: You know, um, as Professor Newman said, um, you know, uh, slavery is legal uh, in all the British colonies uh, at that point. Uh, and there are many colonial slaveholders who take enslaved people with them uh, back to Britain, whether on a visit or a more extended stay sometimes. Um And uh, what you find is that enslaved people in the American colonies have a tradition of running away from enslavement and seeking out free ground um, and sometimes even... suing their masters for their freedom on various grounds, uh, Christianization, evidence of white or Native American blood, or even, you know, simply ill usage. Um, And that is a tradition that I argue in my book that they carry with them when they go to Britain. Um, And you can see this, of course, with the Somerset case. What helps is the emergence of an infant abolitionist movement at that point, Uh, in Britain, and especially outstanding uh, abolitionist lawyers like Granville Sharp, who is then enlisted to help somebody like Somerset. Um, And what the Somerset decision says, what Lord Mansfield says in that decision, he does not outlaw slavery in Britain, but he says colonial slaveholders cannot forcibly take their enslaved people back to the colonies. So that kind of undermines some of their privileges and their rights. And the abolitionist movement and people of African descent uh, are quick to interpret that as the abolition of slavery in Britain itself. Um, and because their privileges are undermined so much that uh, colonial slaveholders become a little more wary of traveling with their slaves to Britain, uh, Quite the same thing happens in mid-19th century United States when uh, southern slaveholders uh, start losing their slaves either through activism, abolitionist activism or through uh, certain important law cases and they feel that their property is no longer secure uh, in the north and it becomes a stepping stone towards civil war.
2: You mentioned the one drop when she says that if you could prove you had um, Indian blood or white blood, did that make a
0: difference? Well, it could do, and <clears throat> it, it depends ex- exactly on the colony and, and on the, the legal structure. But yes, mm-hmm. um, if given that slavery was constructed around a legal system that was defining uh, enslaved people by race, um, then if you could prove that that race was uh, different in any way, It gave legal, it gave potential legal grounds for a claim for freedom. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay. Dr. Newman, I just want to write down again the period that these advertisements, these 800 advertisements you have in the database. Mm -hmm. What are the dates again?
0: They're between 1700 and
2: 1780. Okay. I'm curious because I look at that era as an era, isn't that part of the, King George the Third era. Mhm. That's right. Correct. And when we talk about this one drop rule, at that time King George the Third married Queen Charlotte, right? Mhm. And she had a couple of drops of African blood in her. <clears throat> <laughs> so can you can you, you know, we try. I'm trying to wrap my head around this. You know, in the United States, we, we've been taught about the one drop. You have one drop, you're no longer considered white.
1: You know,
2: it is interesting uh,
1: that I found that Equiano has a petition directly to Queen Charlotte. Uh, against the slave Mm -hmm. trade Mm -hmm. Uh, and he Mm -hmm. sends it on behalf of the Sons of Africa as that group calls themselves uh, these uh, Afro-British abolitionists a handful of them who joined the movement against uh, the slave trade and um, uh, you know why would he pick her maybe he knew or he heard some rumors but we don't have any (laughs) evidence as such of that
0: these rules and the the consciousness of them and the attention to them is much stronger in the colonies than it is in britain In in britain um even though some slave owners and some ships captains and army officers some people are bringing enslaved people with them to britain the fact is we're talking about a tiny tiny number of people in in relation to the british population as a whole and when those people come they're not perceived as dangerous or threatening in the way that if you lived, if you were a white man in South Carolina, you were frightened of enslaved people because they outnumbered you. Um, mm-hmm. And the threat of slave rebellion by people you were treating terribly was very real. That's not true in Britain. And so this is not to say Britain wasn't racist, and there weren't racist people in Britain, there most certainly were. But the situation is very different. So um, mixed-race children of white planters. Uh, sons of white planters in the Caribbean are sometimes going to British universities. Enslaved men and women, people of color in Britain are marrying into the white community. They're joining churches. Their children are being baptized. So there's a degree, a possible degree of integration uh, between the two communities that just really at this point couldn't exist in America. So the one-drop rule just doesn't carry the same weight in Britain as it did in the colonies.
2: Do you have anything
1: to add? Yes. Processes? Yes. Exactly. Uh, I think that's a that's an important point. And um, you see what happens in the United States, or what were the British uh, British colonies in North America earlier? Uh, most colonies pass uh, slave codes or laws uh, defining slavery because slavery is not recognized in English common law. And so these colonial slave codes, in fact criminalize uh, marriage or any kind of intercourse between the races. Um, you don't have those kinds of laws uh, in Britain, so one can imagine that that kind of mixture was uh, more common. And what I found most remarkable uh, in Professor Newman's database is that, you know, while they're predominantly people of African descent, there are other people of color who are brought in, uh, including from India and Native Americans, Uh, that he has Mm -hmm. identified, and this situation is actually rather similar to what happens in France at this time, um, where they have enslaved people from Pondicherry, India, uh, and other places from the French Empire entering into France, and again, uh, the the legal question becomes, you know, what is the status of these people? Uh, are they enslaved people or not? Because the legal systems in, in Britain and in uh, France and some of these other Western countries at that time did not have a law of slavery, that, say, the way Spain and Portugal did. Um, so many of these cases um, in uh, France, there is uh, an important case involving a slave named Rock, uh, just like Somerset in, in the United States, uh, that le- Leads to the establishment of what we would call uh, the freedom principle in these countries that uh, these people are assumed to be free uh, because uh, when they are in in residence in these countries, because uh, these countries don't have any sort of legal law of slavery. So I find this database of runaway slave ads so interesting because um, there's no law of slavery yet, you know, slaveholders. Uh, you know, advertising for their slaves and presumably recovering them at some points, Right, Professor Newman?
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. And we have a whole database now also, much like the database that Professor Newman has developed of a runaway slaves that looks at cases uh, concerning slavery that are brought up before southern courts. Um, and, you know, beginning from uh, Uh, elizabeth key who sued her for her freedom in virginia in the 17th century uh... down to numerous cases in uh, Massachusetts and the other colonies uh, that use this argument of either Native American or white blood to, as Professor Newman put it, uh, to undermine the sort of legal logic uh, behind racial enslavement. And you can see this in the Jenny Slough case especially, which is one of the first cases in colonial Massachusetts where a woman wins her freedom by approving that she has some white blood. Uh, And this was in the 1760s. Um, And you can see this happening, especially in colonial Massachusetts, where many enslaved men and women, especially women, are bringing forward cases um, on various grounds, uh, but white blood being one of them, um, to try and win their freedom. And so the, the notion is that African Americans are looking for any avenue to win their freedom and trying to enlist any allies that they can get. And so... In a way, the Somerset decision really represents a happy marriage between, you know, resistance by the enslaved and English notions, English common law notions of liberty, etc., Newman said is really important to stress, and that is that Mm -hmm. uh, even though things may have been racially a bit more fluid uh, than in the colonies, um, the British Empire at that time was very much based on wealth extracted through the African slave trade uh, and slavery, um, and um you know it was not as if they were the 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 state or the British Empire itself was anti slavery even though you have the emergence of this uh, abolition movement and If you think about it, it took them so long uh, to get that ban on the African slave trade um, and the reason why they did because these British West India interests were very powerful in parliament and they were they were politically powerful mm-hmm. figures. Um, You know, the royal family itself, I mean, the Duke of York, I mean, he was in the Royal African uh, Trading Company, you know, for the slave trade. So you you can see that the the British society and economy at that time, uh, it was not as if, uh, you know, that it was an anti-slavery society, in fact, quite the reverse. Um, And it's the reason why during the American Revolution, even though Lord Dunmore, um, you know, has a proclamation where he invites runaway slaves and Native Americans to join the British, uh, with the promise of freedom for runaway slaves, uh, the British never really make abolition uh, a part of their agenda because they have these incredibly. Uh, uh, profitable colonies in the Caribbean uh, at that time based on slavery. To uh, note, of course, that during the War of 1812, many enslaved people ran away um, yeah. To British lines uh, in order to yeah. win their freedom again. Uh, this is something that enslaved people uh, are doing uh, consistently. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, at the other hand, you had many uh, free African Americans who try to fight on behalf of the Americans in order to win their citizenship within the American Republic. Um, so this this effort of enslaved people to, to sort of win their freedom by running away from the enslavers, it happens during the American Revolution, um, where you have a large number of black loyalists, of course, who are evacuated by the British and then finally sent mm-hmm. back to, you know, Africa, some of
2: them, and some end up even in London. Interesting that the War of 1812, right, and we had... Um, the current president of the united states uh mentioned to the canadians that he thought that they had something (laughs) to do with burning towns the white house in 1812 Mm -hmm. now professor Newman, this is your question
0: well it it was not canadians who burned the white house it was the british army who were very proud of having captured Washington and burned the White House and eaten the dinner that Dolly Madison had laid out before they arrived and then burned the White House. So, um, that, I, okay. I, yes, it's a, okay. it's a different issue.
1: Because uh, remember that the United States also abolishes the African slave trade in 1808. Um, That, of course, as you Mm -hmm. said, there is a certain amount of diplomatic friction between Britain Mm -hmm. and the United States because um, the United States refuses to let the British board their ships to check for cases of illegal importation from Africa. And this uh, results in many slave traders using the American flag uh, to Mm. uh, to, import slaves from Africa. So the illegal trade kind of continues. But that was not Mm -hmm. the cause of the War of 1812. The issue was really naval impressment. Um, It was Mm -hmm. the impressment of uh, American uh, sailors by the British into the British Navy. Um, And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it it also had to do with the domestic party politics of the United States, Mm -hmm. where the Federalists tended to be more pro-Britain and the Republicans tended to be a more pro-French and anti-Britain. Uh, and of course, all these wars were conducted under the, you know, and uh, some of the embargoes, etc., was all done under Republican, Virginian precedents. Um, and, you know, the War of 1812 was often known as Mr. Madison's War <laughs> because he was mm-hmm. the president. And New England was virtually in a state of rebellion against this war because it really hurt the economy of New England. Uh, and you had the famous Hartford Convention when some New England states even thought of seceding from the American Republic uh, because of it. Um, And -hmm. now, of course, after Trump's election, there was some talk in Vermont and other places of seceding and joining Canada, but that's just to connect it to your Trump (laughs) illusion.
0: One of those I found most moving and which has been made, uh, has been the inspiration for a film made by two young um, African Scottish film makers. Mm -hmm. is placed in 1727 in in Scottish newspapers, and it's for a young woman called Anne, about 18 years of age, who runs away. And when she runs away, she's wearing very good clothes, um, uh, but she's also wearing a brass collar around her neck, which says, Dr. Gustavus Brown in Dalkeith, his Negro. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay, now what do you think as far as the Industrial Revolution? Did that have something to do with... um this move away from slavery?
0: Uh, Mm Because Britain was leading the world in the Industrial Revolution, and that was Mm -hmm. based in Britain on a a nominally free white working class who powered these industries. But many, uh, uh, as my colleague has pointed out, many of of the um, products which were being processed in these new industries were being grown by enslaved people in British colonies. Britain was colonizing the world, forcing people into subservience to produce the raw materials which British industry needed so it wasn't do we have slavery or do we have a free working class at home with industry it wasn't either or it was both they worked together
1: these were not uh, contradictory. The growth of the Industrial okay. Revolution in Britain and the growth of uh, the expansion of the so called second slavery, the cotton kingdom in the Southwest. These went hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to remember that. Um, and uh, that when you look at even some of our, you know, uh, slave holding founding fathers, uh, you could kind of link it to Professor Newman's runaway slave uh, advertisements project because um, you know these uh, the, the first families of Virginia actually lost their own slaves uh, during the Revolution. Mm-hmm. So Washington Jefferson actually lost their slaves who ran away from uh, them. Uh, we now know the story mm-hmm. of course, owner Judge. Um, you know, so they they were slaveholders uh, who were confronting the, you know, their slaves' demands for liberty against them. So it was kind of ironic that they were fleeing the founding fathers. And one of Washington's slaves, actually, Harry Washington, ends up in Sierra Leone and, and sort of starts a revolution there against British colonial authorities. So it's, it's a, it's a, if you mm-hmm. trace out the exact stories, so they're actually quite interesting he didn't advertise because it was a very awkward position for him as the president of the United States to advertise uh, for a runaway slave. Um, mm-hmm. so, in fact, he contacts the postmaster general in New Hampshire, which is by then a free mm-hmm. state, um, to recover mm-hmm. his slaves. So he does it through back channels, but using his authority as the president. What's interesting mm-hmm. to me is that the postmaster general of New Hampshire and local officials tell Washington, under no circumstances are they going to send owner judge back to him, uh, that that was a free mm-hmm. state and that she had settled there and married a free man. And, um, you know, she's helped by others, but her own will and determination to be free, uh, they do not send her back. So this of course makes Mm -hmm. Washington, uh, come out in fairly bad light, but we should remember that Washington, uh, did free his slaves, uh, on his death, uh, and provided for their Mm -hmm. education. Um, and, um, You know, this in a way redeems him in the eyes of many black abolitionists. So you have Richard Allen, Mm -hmm. who is, of course, the founder of the historic Amy Church that was attacked in Charleston in 2015, Mm -hmm. who writes this wonderful eulogy on Washington and saying, look at this example that the father of the nation has set for slaveholders. He freed his own slaves. Uh, Of course, he has a stipulation in his will that um, they should be free only after the death of his wife. Uh, Martha Washington, but she's so scared that they will poison her uh, in order to win their freedom right. that she frees them immediately. Um, now, unlike Washington, <laughs> Jefferson never frees his slave, but also in his notes on the state of Virginia, despite writing against slavery in the abstract, uh, says these horribly racist things about black people. And so when I was Mm -hmm. researching my book, I looked at what African-American abolitionists and white abolitionists are saying about these two men, and you see a real differentiation. You see black abolitionists are upset with Jefferson right down to the 1820s and 30s when they're still refuting his racist ideas. So David Walker, in his appeal to the colored citizens of the world, Mm -hmm. and others are still refuting Jefferson's pernicious racism because they think that acts as a very powerful argument against emancipation. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we, uh, you know, even when we look at the so called founding fathers, one has to be careful in sort of really judging them by their particular histories and what they actually said and did. Uh, rather than either lauding them on the one hand as these sort of mythic, wonderful, you know, freedom-loving people, or on the Mm -hmm. other hand, issuing a kind of a blanket condemnation and saying they were all just racist. Uh, You know, I Mm think that's what history does. It brings kind of a little bit more nuance. Uh, And, you know, when you research something, you you really figure out, um, you know, what people's exact positions were.
2: You know. Well,
0: I, I think the one that I found that's most interesting is um, that uh, one of the people in London who, uh, in the middle years of the 1700s, that slave owners say, if you catch my slave, bring them to this person. And the person is Fielding, and he's the brother of the man who's really responsible, senior British politician, um, um, responsible for creating the, the London police. But Fielding is is a vehemently pro-slavery judge who will always rule in favor of slaveholders so if captured slaves are taken to him, he makes sure that the slaves are denied their freedom and go uh, go back to their their owners and masters. So we found some people like that um, but we haven't found major political figures like Washington or Jefferson
2: and when you say go back, are these people going back? to the United States or well, to the colonies or where are they going? To sometimes,
0: die? yeah. Sometimes the, the reason for running away is because they, their owners or masters want to take them back or want to send them back and they, the, these people do not want to go back and so they run away. So sometimes that is the occasion.
2: Okay, so I'm, I'm thinking in terms of the fugitive slave law. Many times, um, slavers would bring uh, enslaved people across the Mason-Dixon line.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and there would be at black abolitionists, white abolitionists, that would help free these people and let them know, you know, they're free, and they would have something like the NAACP slash Black Panthers, um, what were they called, the um, Vigilance Committee? With people in freedom. Was there anything like that going on in England where there was a struggle? We have several stories here in the United States during that era with these advertisements.
0: Well, right at the end of the period we're looking at in the in the 1770s, that's when you begin to see that um, law cases, like the Somerset case, like the Knight v. Wedderburn case in Scotland, that so if an enslaved person challenges or is runs away or challenges their status, that people will step forward and say, we will help you in court, we will represent you, we will arrange this. So okay. it's, at that point, yes, but for most of the 1700s, no. Um, if people found support, it was with individuals who would give them a job or who would give them food or shelter or who would help them. But it's it's not, as far as we can tell,
2: organized. Okay. Go ahead, Dr. Yeah, um, Manisha.
1: That's right. They don't have... Um the kind of vigilance committees that arise up in the United States, mainly, um, you know, with uh, African Americans leading the charge uh, in, in, in many of the northern states in the 19th century. So you have more of these sort of informal contacts where um, Lauda Iquiano might might hear about the plight of a particular runaway slave and then contact uh, Granville Sharp, who was known to represent uh, these enslaved people to to then bring up that case in Britain. So there were sort of more informal contacts. Uh, but later on in the 19th century, when the British and uh, foreign anti-slavery societies formed and, you know, abolition um, is already a done deal in the British Empire, uh, you have actually uh, women Uh, abolitionists who are sometimes involved in, um, you know, helping runaways. Uh, So I found one case where – or more than one case, actually, but a handful of cases where you had runaways who actually stowed away in ships all the way from the south to Britain. And they would arrive in Britain in kind of a starved, um, you know, condition. And many times abolitionists would then, um, you know, take over and um, try to assist these slaves so you did have, um, you know, abolitionist organizations, uh, especially women's abolitionist uh, organizations that existed at that time uh, and to whose attention some of these cases came across. You know, they, they were dead help. But then it was not a huge issue in Britain. I mean, the real fight was being fought in, in the United States by that time. Mm-hmm.
2: Now we had uh, cases like the Zong. um mm-hmm. With a bell and the mm-hmm. movie Bell. We had Amistad, and one case that I found during my genealogy research was a Pickney uh, case in Pickney, uh, South Carolina. They had a mm-hmm. uh, fort. Um, did any of these cases take place during that era, during your advertisement era?
0: Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the Zong was was not um, uh, uh, an uprising so much as the
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, because of the Bad decisions by a captain and his crew, a ship, slave ship coming from Africa towards um, the Caribbean. The captain thought there would not be enough food and water, and they decided to kill off some of the enslaved people by throwing them in the ocean and uh, claim the insurance money for them. And that became the court case in um, 1781, um, where it, it, was all, it was an insurance case although the abolitionists, who by then are becoming a little more prominent, make a lot of capital out of this and say, how can this just be an economic decision about whether insurance should or should not be paid when such a horrific crime against humanity has been committed? So that wasn't about a rebellion. Um, it, it was about the murder of enslaved people on a middle-passage ship.
2: Now, you touched on something that Dr. Manisha uh, Mentioned early on in this conversation, she said that you could be um, liberated if you had one drop of white blood or if you uh, could prove you were a Christian, something something of that nature. How did the Christian movement and, uh, you know, what was their role when you said this was a humanitarian fight and said you just can't kill people and then ask Mm for money for insurance companies? What was, you know, their role?
0: Yeah, I, said, I, I think it beca- I think religion becomes more and more important in the 19th century, um, uh-huh. and in relation to slavery in the U.S. South and how abolitionism in Britain is more and more linked to Methodism and Wesleyanism. But in the in the 18th century, again, it's less organised. I think some people are inspired by religious belief, um, but not everyone. And there are plenty of people in the middle of the 1700s who were good church-going Christians who saw nothing wrong with slavery. So it's much more confused in the 18th century. But as we get into the 19th century, um, organized religion uh, is getting much more behind abolitionism.
1: Yes, and as in politics, there is a, a divide amongst Christians too, right? Um, the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, the, the devil can quote the scriptures, right? Uh, you had many people, even in the South, who then move uh, to remove this as, uh, as a way for enslaved people to get their freedom. So they say even though uh, people of African descent may convert to Christianity, that does not necessarily mean that they're free, and they actually pass laws mm-hmm. explicitly stating that so that no one could sue on the grounds of Christianization. And you have the growth of pro-slavery Christianity in the South that defends slavery as quote, a biblical institution. Um, Similarly, in, in, in Britain, there are Pro-slavery churches, you know, and Douglas goes to uh, Glasgow. In fact, Professor Newman City, uh, where he, mm-hmm. um, you know, he and the abolitionists uh, ask the Presbyterian churches there to send back the money that they have received from Southern slaveholders. They send. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a campaign called "Send Back the Money," and many of these yeah. pro-slavery people actually say, "Quote, Send Back the N," you know, in in response.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: um, you you do have, of course, a part of Christianity that moves towards Abolitionism, especially like the Clapham sect that Wilberforce is involved with evangelical Christians, not to be confused with the fundamentalists of today, um, but they tended to be um, these new uh, sort of Protestant dissenting sects. Um, They tended to have a more liberal theology than that kind of strict fundamentalism Mm -hmm. of some of the older denominations. So, um you know you could you can see the divide even within Christianity, and in the United States, mm-hmm. of course, abolitionists use Christianity to condemn slavery, uh most prominently Theodore Weld uh, and you have southern slaveholders who use the Bible and a very literal fundamentalist reading of the Bible to defend slavery.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. And this is the last question, because I had you on for a, a little over an hour, the two of you, and I really appreciate that you you called and you, you were patient with our technical difficulties, and you're uh, answering a lot of my questions, you know, they're scattered all over the place. <laughs> you're doing a great job. So the last question, and I'm reading this off the internet, because I remember um, the story about Amazing Grace, the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and the person who wrote it is John Newton, um who was mm-hmm. an Anglican priest. And uh if you can uh finish the story about uh Amazing Grace and you know, John Newton and how that's that song is an inspiration. Um it was uh song sung by President Obama after mm-hmm. eight um Christians were killed in a historical church by a mm-hmm. racist, um, mm-hmm. demonic person. So, you know, there's, th- there's a connection, there's ties.
0: Yes. And, and not just that he was an abolitionist, but before he was an abolitionist, he was the captain of a, a slave trading ship right. that journeyed from Africa to Britain. He was a very experienced, and by all accounts, very good, as in he took many hundreds of enslaved Africans mm-hmm. to the colonies. And got them there alive, and made a great deal of money doing it. He was not, when he started that, a Christian. But during one of those voyages, he experienced a terrible storm, I and mean, he writes about this in his in his memoirs. Um, and he saw the way and became a Christian. But even as a Christian, he continued as a slave trading captain for some voyages. It's only later that he begins to reflect on all of this and see that what he had done was wrong. Um, and the him he later writes or he writes it as a poem and it becomes a hymn um, is I think testimony to that and I think it's all the more powerful because he's not just an abolitionist he was first a slave trader and then he became an abolitionist and I think that makes it incredibly powerful
2: I agree with that do you have anything to say uh, Dr. Minesha? on the subject
1: yes um so it is a, a remarkable story how john newton goes from being a slave trader to an abolitionist but he becomes an abolitionist well after he uh experience uh, you know he has a sort of conversion experience um mm-hmm. but um you know i i, I end my book actually <laughs> with president obama in the good old days mm-hmm. uh singing mm-hmm. um uh, an abolitionist hymn written by a repentant slave trader in a church founded by black abolitionists, uh, when I was mm-hmm. trying to talk about the legacy of the abolition movement, um, but I think it is important um, to uh, take away from this entire story that you know um, that things like slavery and injustice occurs in all times and in our times, and what is interesting mm-hmm. about the abolitionists mm-hmm. is that they chose to 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 write against and speak against this, and for a long time, especially in British history, they were always viewed as these kind of, um, you know, white bourgeois armchair philosophers who were sort of hypocrites, uh, blind to the sufferings of the working poor in their own country and talking about enslaved people elsewhere. And in my book, I tell a very, very different story of the abolition movement, uh, centering slave resistance in it, uh, but also looking at the ways in which, in fact, many of them were quite mindful of of other sort of uh, evils that existed in their world. And I I think what the Runaway Slave uh, Advertisement Projects do in the database that has been now published in Britain and the one that is now being constructed in the United States um, that actually upends the the numbers that we've had of the number of fugitive slaves in the U.S. census um, is that it reminds us that uh, enslaved people never just quietly accepted their enslavement, that they resisted and that they did indeed have an impact on the progress of the abolition movement.
2: Exactly. Okay. And with that being said, um, we can end the show. I just want uh, you, Dr. Manesha, to give us your contact information, your website, and then we'll let you close out the show, Dr. Uh, Newman, with your contact information and what you want, you know, what you expect and dream your database uh, will we'll we'll, will do for our people that are listening. Okay. okay. Dr. Manisha? Oh, okay.
1: Uh, So, again, my name is Manisha Sinha, and uh, you can find me in the Department of History, University of Connecticut website, uh, and my contact information there. Um, I uh, am a historian of slavery, abolition, the Civil War, and Reconstruction, and I recently published uh, a book on the American abolition movement called The Slaves' Cause, A History of Abolition. And actually, I'll be in England Thanks. at the International Slavery Museum uh, next week to do a book talk. Uh,
2: so, mm. wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Newman.
1: Yes, um,
0: my name is Professor Simon Newman. I'm in the History Department at the University of Glasgow, and you can find my contact information there. Um, the Runaway Slaves website is available at www.runaways.gla.ac.uk. Mm-hmm. And what I hope this database will do is raise awareness in Britain and beyond in America, too, of the existence of so many enslaved people, many of them, most of them of African extraction, some indigenous American and some South Asian, who were in Britain in the 18th century and make people realize that slavery was very real here and that this was a multiracial society 300 years ago.
2: Wonderful. I thank the two of you for your patience again, and I hope you will accept my invitation. Um, and this is of Freedom. I'm signing off. This is Leslie Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: It was a pleasure talking with you both.
2: Yes. Thank you. Thank
1: you for uh, um, the show, Leslie, and it, it, it was wonderful to to actually talk to you, Professor Newman, because I've been seeing uh, your.